Uh, as you are getting there, you are not mistaken that we did just start Acts last week. Um, you're like, wait, what? Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so, some sermons are more maybe uh, stirring the affection. Some sermons are more sort of getting at the intellect and, and, and deep thinking. T- today is going to be one of those more thinking sermons. I hope you have some affections too, but it's, it's one of those more thinking type of sermons, and we're going to be in a lot of different passages, and I want to sort of explain what I'm even trying to do. So, at the very beginning of Acts, right out of the chute, in Acts chapter 1, right before the ascension of Jesus, the disciples hear Jesus talking about two things, the coming of the kingdom and the giving of the Spirit. And they conclude, there's one obvious question to ask Jesus right before His ascension. They ask in Acts 1-6, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was standing next to Jesus right before the ascension, I don't think I would have even thought to ask that question. And that's their one big question before the ascension. So, I… some may think this is unnecessary, but I'm going to take a whole week just to explain their question. So, a round of applause? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, I, I, I want to spend a, a, I want to give a, a pretty long sermon, I think, trying to explain why they're even asking that question, because here's my conclusion. I think, I'm, I'm including myself here, when I, when we read the Bible, we can just skip right over that question and just keep going and just, oh, you know, it's kind of making sense, kind of making sense. But there is a world of theology behind their question. And it incorporates the prophets. It incorporates the promises in the Old Testament. It incorporates many, many fulfillments in the New Testament. How are we supposed to understand the role of Israel as New Testament believers today? Now, talk about an emotionally sensitive issue. I mean, not only have the Jewish people been treated horribly throughout much of human history, post-World War II, post-Holocaust, there has been a a particular appropriate reaction of just the horrors of what happened in the Holocaust perpetrated by Hitler and the Nazis, obviously against the Jewish people, uh, killing millions of them uh, horribly in in an evil fashion. So, one of the big questions is how does Israel fit in to the larger story of the Bible and how does the kingdom relate to Israel itself? Now, um, you've got different schools of thought on this topic, as you could probably imagine. Let me say one more caveat. Um, we, we, can, we can sit through a three-and-a-half-hour football game, no problem. It's hard to make it through a 55-minute sermon, which is what I'm aiming for. Maybe I'll, get, maybe I'll make it. And uh, I, I just want to say, I, I really do think the Bible is worth our time. I, I know it may not feel exciting. This is, may not feel practically relevant to your Monday. I promise you it actually is. But it takes a long time to get to practical application, and we're, we're like, we're life application people, and I love that about like our generation, our, our world. We, we love like get, get from the text to my life in as short a period of time as possible. And I'm saying, that's not the way this question works. We've got to go through a lot of material and, and work through things as carefully as we can, and then I do plan to come back to you and I in our everyday life. I, I, that's the goal. But man, we need to be thinking Christians, and I, I admire you guys because you guys are. Um, so, so, let me give some big words here. 
uh, if you can think of sort of a chart of how to understand Israel and the church, there are, there are kind of four different positions, and there's probably lots more, but I'll, I'll give you sort of four, and I'll, I'll start with the two extremes. What you had in the 19th century was called classical dispensationalism, and that's at one far extreme. On the other far extreme, you have sort of covenant theology, okay, on the, on the other far extreme. I'll explain what, what's going on here. And then in the, in the last 50 to 100 years, there's been sort of a refinement of those positions, and you have two positions, both with the word progressive, not in the modern political sense of progressive, but in, in a different sense, in a good sense, that there's this idea of progressive in the middle here. So you've got classic dispensationalism, and you've got covenant theology. And then you have two progressive movements closer to the center. One is called progressive dispensationalism, and the other one is called progressive covenantalism. Okay? Now, if that all sounds like gobbledygook, I understand. Let, let me try to put some, so, so some of these things will be emotional, controversial, you may even have strong agreeing or disagreeing opinions, and this is not a central issue of the gospel, but, it, but I just want to say, just because it's not a central issue doesn't mean we don't care about it. Right? It's like, it's not a matter of life and death, so don't care. It's like, that's not, I don't think that way, okay? It still matters. It, it affects how we interpret about 30% of the Bible. So it really matters. I mean, how, how, many of the prophecies, many of the apocalyptic books, Revelation almost entirely, Daniel, most of it. I mean, this affects First and Second Thessalonians. It, it affects Romans 9 to 11. It affects the Olivet Discourse and all Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It affects large swaths of Ezekiel. It affects large swaths of Jeremiah, large swaths of Amos. I mean, on and on. It affects how you interpret much of the Bible. So it really matters. Um, but we can still have Christian unity even with differences on this position. I'm, I'm trying to thread the line here, you feel? It really matters, but it's not an issue to ultimately divide over, I don't think. But um, so, to, to kind of use some of these emotional statements, we have very strong reactions. Um, most of us, I'm just going to guess, maybe not all, my guess is a lot of us have grown up in the left-behind world. You know, you know the left-behind world. Tim LaHaye, what's his, Jenkins, what's the guy? I don't remember the other guy's name. And you have Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, I think back in the 70s. And if, if you've kind of grown up in the last century, especially if you're a Southern Baptist, probably you grew up with left behind theology just sort of in the air. It was just, so, wow, that was not a pun. Uh, you just, in the air, you just sort of, you just grew up believing it. You just sort of grew up, th this is the way it is. And anyone who disagrees with the left behind basic premise is probably not taking the Bible very seriously. And, and the basic premise here being, that there are going to be sort of the return of Christ is going to happen in two stages. Uh, you, you've got Jesus coming all of a sudden with an invisible rapture. With the invisible rapture of the church, remember everybody, like you got like the bus driver was a Christian and suddenly his pants and shirt are sitting there and he's gone, remember this thing? And the bus just goes off the highway and you're like, ah, I need to have non-Christians drive my automobiles. Uh, Non-Christian pilots only, please. I don't want a pair of pants and we're flying toward the uh, Caribbean. I don't want to have that happen. So, uh, the Left Behind series, you would have the invisible rapture. All Christians were snatched invisibly away. Jesus came back in a way that was not publicly seen by unbelievers, but was seen by believers. Believers are resurrected. We, we go up in the clouds. We are, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4. We're snatched, caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. And then the Left Behind view is the church is gone for the next seven years. During those seven years, they are the seven years of starts with a T. Tribulation. During the seven years of tribulation, the idea is that much of the book of Revelation unfolds. Really, from chapter 6 of Revelation all the way to Revelation chapter 19, you have the bowls and the trumpets and the, the, the scroll being opened, and you have God pouring out in an unbelievable fashion plagues of Egypt-like judgments on planet Earth. 
And during those seven years, the church is gone, but there is a large number of Jewish people who are converted to the faith, and they then lead the conversion of others. At the end of those seven years, Jesus returns visibly, uh, in a way public. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. And then you have, uh, you have uh, Him judging the nations. And then, again, according to this view, you usher in the millennium. We've all probably heard of the millennium. It's the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's mentioned repeatedly in one chapter of the Bible explicitly. The ch Revelation chapter 20, the third from last chapter of the Bible. And during this thousand-year reign, Jesus uh, reigns in Jerusalem, uh, and He fulfills many promises made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament prophets during that thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of that thousand years, you have the ultimate final judgment. Uh, it is the, the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20. And unbelievers then are cast into the, into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And then Jesus ushers in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwell forever. Okay? Now, even if you would or wouldn't have articulated it in detail... Many of us have grown up, just that's in the air. The invisible rapture, seven years of tribulation, and then the visible second coming of Jesus. Now, here's where it gets emotional. I don't mean like you're crying. I mean, there could be blood pressure could rise when I say this. I, I don't believe in the return of Christ in two stages. Uh, I believe the return of Christ is a singular event in the Bible. So I do not believe that there's going to be an invisible rapture of believers, seven years of tribulation, and then a visible second coming of Christ. I believe that when the, the, the return of Christ is described in the Bible, I believe it is describing a singular event, a one-time event that comes after a time of tribulation, which I'm not convinced is seven years long. So uh, my understanding is 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are big on this. If you want to know, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Uh, you do a lot of work on those ch four chapters, and I am convinced Paul is describing a singular event. You have the trumpet sound, Jesus comes back, and, and all that follows after that. Now, even to say that out loud is pretty controversial, but if, if you even feel a little bit of the controversy of what I'm saying right now, you understand why this discussion really does matter, because it affects that, and I will say more importantly, perhaps, even than, than the rapture and, and those kinds of things, uh, it, it also affects how we understand what the church is in this age. I think this is actually a lot more important than the seven years. Um, so, what is the church right here and now, and how does it relate to God's Old Testament people? Now, I know you want Scripture. I'm going to get to Scripture. We've got lots of Scripture. Um, my understanding here is that the New Testament presents Jesus Himself as the true Israelite. He is true Israel. I think Ezekiel predicts that a suffering servant comes who is Israel. He's called Israel, and he's also sinless, okay? And he comes and bears the stripes. His beard is pulled out, stripes for us. He dies in our place. Jesus is true Israel. Just to give a, a biblical example beyond Isaiah, Matthew structures the opening chapters of his gospel assuming that Jesus is true Israel. Let me give you an example. Was Jesus, uh, was Jesus hunted in his birth by, evil ruler, by an evil ruler? Herod, right? Were the Israelite children hunted in their birth by an evil ruler in Egypt? Yes, Pharaoh, right? Was Israel called out of Egypt as God's son? Yes, was Jesus called out of Egypt? Out of Egypt I have called my son, Matthew 2. Yes. 
uh, was then Jesus passes through the waters, next in Matthew, right? He passes through the waters, and then he receives the Spirit, and he goes into the wilderness and is tempted. Does Israel, after coming out of Egypt, pass through the waters and go into the wilderness to be tempted for 40, not days, 40 years? Do you see a correspondence here? Then when Israel's in the wilderness, they sin in three areas, right? The the three areas are the three areas where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? right? Worshiping false gods, not trusting God, a relationship to food, and testing God. And every time Jesus responds to Satan, does he quote the Bible? He does. And every time he doesn't quote random verses, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and 8, where the recounting of the Israelite story in the wilderness is recounted. So Jesus says, I'm true Israel. I'm in the wilderness, and I'm not sinning when tempted, like Israel did. I am succeeding where Israel failed. They were called son of God. I am son of God. They failed. I succeed. In the wilderness, in those 40 years, they then go to Mount Sinai, and they get the law from the mountain. In Matthew chapter 4, he's in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 5, he goes up on a mountain and gives his law. Matthew 5 to 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, do you see here that Matthew is actually structuring his gospel, showing us Jesus fulfills the true role of Israel? You with me? Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus does what Israel failed to do. Now, how do we relate to this? Okay, might be a few of us who perhaps have Jewish Jewish, uh, ethnicity in our family line. Most of us probably not. But either way, we are Christians. So what are we? Well, I'm going to argue that Jew and Gentile today, by faith in Jesus, so, so get this, Jesus is true Israel. We, by faith in Jesus, are united to Jesus, right? Which makes the church, in this, in this sense, the church now is the fulfillment of what Israel was called by God to be. And if that sounds a little sketchy, you go, "Eh, that sounds like a stretch. I don't know. First of all, I want to say this. Don't believe what I'm saying because I'm saying it. That would be foolish. Test the scriptures and see if what I'm arguing for today is biblical. And if you come to the conclusion it is not biblical, let me tell you, don't believe it. I want you to believe what scripture says, not what I'm saying. Who could care less about that, okay? Uh, so, look, look at Philip. I just want to walk through, this is one we just talked about. I want to walk through a lot of passages, and I will ask for your patience if this goes on for many, this might be 40 days in the wilderness, I don't know. We might be asking for stones to turn into bread before this is over. I am hungry. Okay, Philippians 3, you'll remember a few weeks ago, Philippians 3, verse 2, Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh, even though he says, I had reason for confidence in the flesh because I was an Israelite. Now, do you remember what I said about this a while back? Paul is looking at Jewish false teachers who are saying to be really in with God's people, to be really part of of, of God's people, you've got to be not just believing in Jesus, you've got to accept all the Jewish laws, starting with circumcision and moving on. And Paul says, people who teach that are dogs... Remember, that was a word Jews used for Gentiles, and he's calling the Jewish false teachers dogs. Then he says, this teaching on circumcision is actually mutilating the flesh. You've actually misunderstood the basics. And then he looks at a church with Jews and Gentiles in it, and he says, for we, not I, we, including Gentile Philippians, we are, let me get the words right, for we are the circumcision. Do you see what he's saying? We are the true people of God. It is, it is the, the indicator here is our relationship with Jesus. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This will be a really short one. 1 Corinthians 10 to the left, a few books. 
Paul again talking to the Corinthians, who are mostly Gentiles, says this. These are just little subtle indicators. I'll get to clearer ones as we go, I think. Here's a subtle indicator. 1 Corinthians 10.1, he's talking about the wilderness generation, and look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that what? Our fathers were all under the cloud, passed through the sea, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's talking about the wilderness generation, and he says in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, do you see, do you see it's subtle. Paul looks at a church made up of Jew and Gentile and says, the Old Testament patriarchs are not my fathers, they're our fathers. How could that be? How could that be? Look at verse uh, 18. And then he says here, consider the people of Israel. You may have a footnote if you have the ESV. The Greek is, consider Israel according to the flesh. The, he, he says the Israel of the Old Testament here, many of them falling in the wilderness, was Israel according to the flesh. And he, that would seem to indicate, well, maybe there's an Israel according to the Spirit. But perhaps there is more than just physical, ethnic Israel. Okay, turn with me to Galatians. This is to the right two books. Galatians chapter 6. Now, th this is a super controversial text, and I understand that there's a grammatical discussion here. Galatians chapter 6. Now, as you turn to Galatians 6, if you remember the book of Galatians, remember this book? Paul is dealing throughout the entirety of the book with do Gentile Christians have to adopt the Mosaic law to be truly part of God's people? That's what the whole book is about. From beginning to end, the entire book is just all about that. And after arguing, and I'm gonna get, we'll go backwards and look at it, after arguing that anybody, Jew or Gentile, who is unified with Christ is part of Abraham's offspring, after making that argument very clearly that it's not about your ethnicity, it's not about keeping the ceremonial laws, after making that argument for six chapters, he then says these words. Look at verse, look at verse 14, Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross. You know what, let me go one verse further back. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now look at 15. For neither circumcision counts for what? Anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. Do you see what he just did? Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, irrelevant, completely, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is if you have a new creation. Then look at 16. And for, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, I'll tell you why this is such a controversial verse. Grammatically, and everybody on both sides admits this, the grammar can go either way. Paul may be saying, grace and mercy be upon the church and on a separate group, the Israel of God. Could mean that. The dispensational side would certainly have to take it that way. Some people on the side I argue for still take it that way. Talk about that another time. But here, here's the important part. 
Um, a lot of translations translate it a different way, which is equally acceptable in Greek grammar. There's no way to decide this by Greek grammar because the word and in Greek could be translated even in this context. Believe me, it, it works. So that's, the issue has got to be decided contextually. Here's how it could read, and many modern translations translate it this way. And as for those who walk by this rule, peace be upon them, that is upon the Israel of God. Okay, do you see how different that is? So he's talking to the church. Whoever follows this rule, which would be Christians, peace be upon them, that is the Israel of God, or even the Israel of God. So, how do we know which is which? Is Paul blessing the church and separately Israel, or is Paul calling the church the Israel of God? Do you see how different those two things are? Well, I, I really do think that the stronger argument is that he's calling the church the Israel of God. Let me tell you why. The entire letter has had as its goal to say there is no Jewish advantage or no Gentile disadvantage. You are all one in Christ. You're equally saved in Christ. He said in chapter 3, for there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. Why would you make an emphasis to say it's not about circumcision, it's not about Mosaic law, it's not about ethnicity, that doesn't matter, it's irrelevant, circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. Why would you argue that for six chapters and then say, by the way, there's a blessing for the ethnic Jews that Gentiles can't have in Jesus? That would be to open the wound he just closed, do you see? It doesn't make sense to me. Why, why would you get to the end of a letter arguing that there's no advantage of, of Jew over Gentile in Christ and then say, by the way, bless the church and there's a separate thing over here for the Israel of God? No, I, I think the whole point of Galatians is, in Christ, we are the true Israel of God. I think that's the whole point of the book of Galatians, and if you don't believe me, let me work backwards through it. So let's go back to chapter 3 to the clearer verses that are, I think, le well, they're, they're debatable, but I think you can make good points here. So, this may be the most technical part. It's probably not true. Maybe the most technical part of this sermon, so hang with me here. Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his what? His offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay. Do you see that Paul has the word and at the beginning of his quotation from the Old Testament? He doesn't just say to your offspring, he says and to your Do you see the word and is twice in there? It's very conspicuous. He says, okay, this promise is for you and for your offspring. It says, uh, not referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. You say, why does that matter? Okay, now this took me time yesterday, and it was super tedious and not fun, so this is my gift to you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, it was translated into Greek, and that's what Paul's working with here, Septuagint, and Paul's referencing some quote in the Abraham story. And the, the quote is, and to your offspring. You can see it right there. And it has the word and at the beginning. Okay, now don't fall asleep. The Greek phrase, and to your offspring, the exact phrase he uses here, the exact phrase only appears three times, in the story of Abraham in the Greek book of Genesis. Are right, you with me? Three times. And I, I, I went and worked through all three of them. In all three quotations in the Septuagint, Paul has to be quoting one of these three because it has and to your offspring. It's like chi to sperma to sue or whatever the phrase is, exact phrase. It, when you go back and read it, what you find is in each of those instances, in the immediate context, the reference is not just to promises in general, but to the promise of the land. Remember, there's a promise, the promised land. So look around, he says, up north, south, east, and west. It is to you and to your offspring that I will give this land. Okay. Now, one of the big problems for the position that I'm arguing for 
is that I am arguing that the church is the heir of the promises of Israel through Jesus. And if that's true, then where, what do we do with the land promise? Because isn't Israel promised the land, and isn't the Davidic king going to reign in Israel, and the nations are going to flock to Israel? Like, what, what about the land promise? Like, you know, Palestine. Like, what, what about that happening? Uh, where is that going to happen? Because the church is not going to do that. So, where is, are you just saying that the land promise goes away? That God breaks his promise about the land, that God doesn't keep it, that he backs away from his promise, that he decides not to, you know, are you going to spiritualize the promise? Are you going to just make it kind of act like it, it happens in Jesus somehow? Like, what, what about the land promise? It's all over the prophets. Well, I am convinced that the land promise is included in whatever Paul's talking about right here. And let me give you some more arguments why. So first argument, he uses the word promises in the plural, which includes the land promise in verse 16. Number two, he uses the phrase, and to your offspring, which in all three texts explicitly relates to the land promise. And then number three, look at verse 18 right here after this. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now that word for inheritance in the Greek is used in Genesis, and it's used throughout the book of Joshua. And you know what the typical meaning of that Greek word for inheritance is in the Old Testament? The land promise. You will inherit this land. The, the typical meaning of inheritance language in the Old Testament is the land. And the word for heir, being an heir, is normally referencing the land. Okay. So we're clearly, this is being given to Jesus. But what about, what about us? Okay, look with me at verse 28, same chapter. 328. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you, that is the church, are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So I am arguing here that Paul is not leaving the land promise out. He's saying we are true offspring, true sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the fulfillment of Israel. We are true Israel here, and that we inherit, we are heirs of the promises, which include the land promise. You say, I, how do we inherit the land? Look with me at, uh, let's go to the left, to Romans chapter 4. As you are turning there, I want to try to set this up a little bit. So the Bible does not begin with Abraham, it begins with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are given a small portion of land, but were they supposed to stay in that one little tiny area? No, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. So, from the very beginning of the Bible's storyline, the, the, the plan was always that God's image bearers reflect him, not just in a little garden called Eden, but that they spread God's glory across the entire planet, that they multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and at the end of the storyline... The, the goal was always that God's dominion reign over all of earth with all of his image bearers. You with me? It was, it was never just about Eden. It was always about the entire earth, right? Then God picks Abraham, and he gives him a small allotment of land, right? The promised land. And he says, okay, this right here is looking forward to a larger inheritance than just the promised land. And you see it in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. You will reign from the river to the ends of the earth. From sea to sea, the Davidic king will reign. That's in Psalm 2. Psalm 70, 
I think it's 72, uh, there's many places where it refers to God's kingdom taking over the earth. Famously, Daniel, right? The, the rock that knocks over the kingdoms and fills the earth. You have this idea that God's reign is going to take over the earth. And Paul picks up on that theme, and look with me here, Romans 4.13. In fact, let me, let me start just before that. Uh, l- let's look at uh, 4.11. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now look at 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, sounds like Galatians, that he would be heir, there's our word, of what? The promised land? Of the Greek word cosmos, right? Of the world. So let me read this again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here's how I understand this. The, the promise to Abraham of the land starts with the promised land, but it was never meant to be bound to the promised land. The goal was always what Adam and Eve had as their goal, which was what? The whole earth. And so, what happens? I don't think that the promised land promise is fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. I think the promised land promise is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem and the new creation, the new earth. So, I'm not spiritualizing this promise. The new earth is going to be physical and real. I am not saying the promise doesn't happen. I'm saying the promise does happen. God promised Abraham the land, and he's going to give him the whole thing, all of earth. It's going to be a new creation. That's why it's called the new Jerusalem, okay? It's, it's connected to the promised land, but it's, it's huge. It takes over all of planet earth, and that's how the Bible ends. Now, um, referencing a part of the Bible that we don't read often, I'm including myself here, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. This morning, you may have been reading it in Hebrew, I don't know. Fred probably was. Um, the, Ezekiel 40 to 48 uh, has this picture of God uh, renewing his, his renewing, it doesn't say Jerusalem, but it, it seems to be Jerusalem, and he, he builds this new temple there, and the Lord God dwells in the land with the people. And here's what's interesting. When Revelation references that passage, which it does on numerous occasions, it doesn't reference Ezekiel's restoration of the land in Revelation 20, where you might expect it, because that's when the millennium happens, no reference to it in Revelation 20. Where does he reference it? He references it in Revelation 21 and 22, which is the new heavens and new earth. So, for instance, in Ezekiel's vision of the land, he sees a river flowing out of the throne of God, out of the Holy of Holies. What do we have in Revelation 22? A river coming out of the throne of God. In Ezekiel, we see what do we see there? We see uh, on either side of the river, 12 trees for the healing of the nations. What do we, where do we see that in Revelation? In the millennium? No, we see it in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 22. There's a river on both sides, trees for the healing of the nations. When John is interpreting Ezekiel's vision, he sees it fulfilled, the land promise fulfilled in the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. If you're not convinced, turn with me to the right, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. See how the author of Hebrews understands this land promise. Hebrews 11, 
verse 8. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not going, knowing where he was going. By faith, he went in, uh, to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see what Abraham saw this pointing to the whole time was the building with foundations. That's the new Jerusalem. Look, look with me at verse, 14, uh, verse, verse 13. These all, these Old Testament saints, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, speak this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, what? A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Do you see? Abraham was focused on a land promise, but it was the heavenly Jerusalem coming to earth. It wasn't uh, something before that, as far as I can tell here. Look with me at chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 22, same theme that keeps coming up in Hebrews. What is this city? 12, 22, but you, Christians, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Is he talking about the earthly Jerusalem? The heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Turn with me to chapter 13. Verses 12 to 14. This one's interesting. Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. The gate of what city? Jerusalem. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here, where the earthly Jerusalem is, right, we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. So the first accusation against the view that I hold is that I don't believe God is literally going to fulfill the land promise. And I'm saying Romans 4 says God promised Abraham the earth and he's going to give it to him. And he's not just going to give it to Abraham, he's going to give it to all of Abraham's offspring. And guess who his offspring are? It's not about ethnic descent, it's about spiritual heritage. Those who have the faith of Abraham, their forefather, are sons of Abraham. And we are, we, are, we are in Christ, and therefore we inherit the world. Jesus didn't say the meek will inherit the promised land. In that sense, the, the, the little area of paradise, the meek will inherit the, the earth. Okay, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, to the left, a few books. Ephesians chapter 2. If this isn't uh, strong enough, I think this passage is quite strong. It may be familiar to you, but listen on this particular subject of Jews and Gentiles and the new relationship we have in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, Gentiles, Gentile Christians, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in who? Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Is that strong or what? Create one new man in place of the two. What are the two? Jew and Gentile. So God is creating a new man in Jesus in place of the two. Uh, verse 16, uh, into 15, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, especially Gentile Christians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? Fellow citizens of what? I believe this is true Israel. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Why do I think that means true Israel? Didn't he just say that we were, back in verse 12, he said we were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, and now we're no longer aliens but fellow citizens of what? True Israel. That's my understanding of that text. Members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now listen to chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery, Paul? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, do you see? When you read the Old Testament, it is definitely clear that God is going to bless the Gentiles, right? He says to Abraham, in you, your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. So, the Great Commission starts in Genesis 12, 3, okay? All the nations will be blessed through Abraham. But the assumption almost certainly would have been that when the Messiah comes, how do Gentiles enter into the people of God? And the answer would have been they believe in the Messiah, they trust in God, and they become Jews. They adopt circumcision. They adopt all the ceremonial laws. Of course, that's how, how did Rahab, how did, how did um, uh, you know, Uriah, he was not a Jew, he was Uriah the Hittite. How do these people become part of the Jewish people? They had to have a full-blown conversion. They trust in God and they adopt circumcision if they're a man and they adopt all the Jewish feasts and ceremonies and they become Jewish to become saved. I'm not saying being a Jew saves you, but you see what I'm saying. You, you adopt this whole thing, you're saved by faith, not by being Jewish, but that was all part of the process. And so the assumption would have been when the Messiah comes, yes, Israel will be restored, the nations will be blessed. How? The nations will convert. And the shocking thing that Paul is saying is they will be part of God's end time Israel. They will. But you know what? It's by faith alone in Jesus, not by adopting circumcision and the Mosaic law. You can remain a Gentile and become part of God's end time people by faith in Jesus Christ alone. I, I, I left this out, just mention it. 
Hebrews 8, we went through this in the summer. In Hebrews 8, the author is talking to a church. I know the church is largely Jewish, but he's talking to a church. And he says, the new covenant, he's making a big deal, new covenant. He gives the longest quotation of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jeremiah 31. And he says, God says, O house of Israel and house of Judah, I will make a new covenant with you. And he applies it to who? The church. How's that possible? How can you apply the new covenant given to the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and apply it to a church? How can you do that? How can we be part of the new covenant if it was given to Israel? Well, Jesus is Israel, and we are in Christ. And so we are God's end-time people through that means. Turn with me to the right to 1 Peter chapter 2, near the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2. When we went through the first half of Exodus as a church, near the end of that series, we got to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, at the foot of Mount Sinai, God says to Israel, you are my holy nation, my chosen race, my kingdom of priests, a people of my own possession. Okay? Here's how 1 Peter talks to the church. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He's talking to the church made up largely of Gentiles. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Why? How are you? The church isn't a nation, and that's a, what are you doing calling the church a holy nation? That's the Israel's name. Do you see? The, the kingdom of priests is Israel's job. He just gave it to the church, right? He, he, the, the chosen race, that's Israel. He just called the church. A, we're not a race. We're multi-ethnic, right? The church across the world has many tribes, tongues, peoples, language. He just said the church is a, is a, is a chosen race. He's using Israel language and applying it to the church. And it all, when you first hear it, it almost says, what, what are you saying, Peter? For middle of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the... Wait, I thought they were Gentiles. Do you see how this is happening? He's, he, he's, he's talking to the church like they're Israel, and he's calling non-Christians Gentiles, but that church is full of Gentiles. What do you mean? What's happening here? How are they a holy nation? The church isn't political in that sense. We don't have like a, we're not we're like running a political region or something like that. It's not a nation state like Israel. He's using language for Israel, and he's giving it to the church through Christ. Okay, now I won't make you go to all these texts. I'm just going to start listing. This will make it maybe a little faster. Okay? I'm going to give you names that God calls Israel in the Old Testament or titles that are given to Israel that are then given to the church in the New Testament. God calls His people in the Old Testament beloved. He calls us His beloved. You say, ah, that one's easy. That could be anything. Okay. The elect. How about that one? Good reformed word. Deuteronomy 4.37, he calls Israel his chosen people. Who are the, what are we called in the church? I read it in Romans 8. God predestined us, chose us in Christ. He actually, referring to the Israelite generation, they are called the ecclesia. The, that's the same word translated church in the New Testament. The wife of Yahweh, Hosea chapter 2 verse 16. I am your husband, O Israel. Right? Okay, so Yahweh is the husband, Israel is the bride. Jesus shows up and says, uh, yeah, I'm the husband, I'm Yahweh in the flesh, and my bride is my people, and who, who's, I'm going to build my church. 
How about Ephesians 5, 25? Husbands, love your wives as Christ so loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's bride is the church. Yahweh's bride is Israel. Okay, does God have two brides here? What's going on here? Uh, the vineyard, Isaiah 5, describes Israel as a vineyard, especially verse 7. What does Jesus say? I am the vine. You're the branches. Any branch that does not abide in me will not bear fruit. If you don't abide in me, you bear no fruit, you're cut off, and you perish. Jesus says, I am the role of Israel. Israel was called the vine in Isaiah 5. Jesus picks up that language and says, I'm the vine, and if you're attached to me, you're attached to true Israel. You are God's people. You are the vine. Uh, the olive tree in Jeremiah 11, verse 16, he calls Israel an olive tree. In Romans 11, remember the olive tree analogy. Israel, ethnic Jews, are the natural branches of the olive tree, and for a time of hardening, God has cut off the natural branches, and what has he done? He's engrafted uh, shoots from a wild olive tree, Gentiles, and he's put them into the, into the olive tree. This is not the church replacing Israel. The church is a, being attached to those basic promises to the forefathers and is getting its nutrition from the olive tree. It's not a separate tree. How about this one? I mentioned it, Exodus 4.22. Israel is called the Son of God. Well, Jesus is the Son of God, right? He's the true Israel, and we are in Christ, so what are we? We're sons of God, Romans 8, 14. How about this? Nehemiah 9, 8 calls Israel Abraham's offspring. Galatians 3, 29, we just read, those in Christ are Abraham's offspring. They would have been called the true circumcision. Philippians 3, 3, that we read, we are the true circumcision. Turn with me to the left to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, I'll just read really quickly on this one. Romans chapter 2, look at verse 28. Let me start 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, that's a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? The Gentile, who's born again, is a true Jew. He's truly circumcised. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised, a Gentile, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code, a, a, an ethnically Jewish person, and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. If you've been born again, you have a circumcised heart, which makes you an inward Jew, a true son of Abraham from within. Back to my list here. God calls Israel the redeemed in Deuteronomy 7, 8. We are redeemed in Christ, Galatians 3, 13. How about this one, Ezekiel 34, the whole chapter. The leaders of Israel are called the shepherds, and they're bad bad shepherds. And God says, I'm going to send David. Now, this is hundreds of years after David is dead. David's like, I don't think I can make it. <laughs> I'm going to send David. Who's David? The Messiah, the son of David. I'm going to send David, and he will shepherd my people, the flock of God. And what does Jesus do? John chapter 10, he picks up on this. It goes, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. They will follow me. They will know me. So, the, the, Israel is called the sheep, and what does Jesus say? Not, not, my sheep are not just from this fold, Israel. They're from all over the world. I got sheep from other folds too, and they're going to follow me, and they will, be my, they will follow my voice. Um, the word, strangely, the word the people, laos in Greek, is often used to describe Israel, and it is also used to describe the church in the book of Acts. The saints. 
Psalm chapter 30, verse 4, talks about the saints. Romans 1, 7, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to the right. I, I know you're probably wearying on this, but hang with me here. Go, go to the right to Hebrews chapter 3. This is an interesting one, not, not often mentioned, but I think it's worth looking at. Hebrews chapter 3. Comparing Moses and Jesus. Let me just read it real quick. Verse 1. Uh, yeah, verse 1. He Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now hang with me, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. The house there is referring to the nation of Israel. He was, he was faithful in God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that have been spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, do you see? Moses was faithful in God's house, referring to the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel. In the New Testament, he says, Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are that house. Right? So again, the titles are given to, to both. Let me just give one more mention here. When you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, the New Jerusalem, which by the way is the bride of Christ, right? I mean, the bride includes Gentiles, predominantly, and it's, it's called Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. Gentile, Gentile and Jewish bride called Jerusalem. Why would you call it that? And then it has, remember this? The, the 12 foundations and all the different 12s everywhere in, in, in that chapter, it mentions the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes. Why did Jesus pick 12 apostles to start the church? Why, pick, why not pick 13, you know, baker's dozen? Uh, why, why not pick 15? Why not pick 120? Why not the 72? He picked 12. Any Jewish man in the first century walking around with 12 followers knows what he's doing. I, this is renewed Israel. Twelve tribes brought into birth Old Testament Israel. I'm starting with twelve apostles to bring to birth the church, and we're going to talk about this in Acts. Why do they have to replace Judas before Pentecost? Because they need twelve. Why do they need twelve? It's a symbolic number pointing back to the people of God in the Old Testament. Okay, now I, I really do want to say a couple pieces of life, uh, of life application here. Number one. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God, all of them, are yes in Christ. All of them. So I don't believe God is breaking His promises, not keeping His promises. I believe God is keeping all of His promises in Christ, sometimes in unexpected ways. But what we are seeing here is we, the heirs, we, we are heirs in Christ of all God's promises. We, as His bride, inherit all the promises of God in Jesus. Number two, we are Abraham's children and we are the sons of God. Number three, we are Christ's chosen and beloved bride. It's a privileged position. And number four, we have a light to give to our neighbors and the nations, which is what Israel was called to do. Remember? 
Israel was called to be a light to the nations, and they failed so frequently that God has now called us to let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. So my guess is this long and sort of tedious message has probably raised more questions in your own mind perhaps than it's answered. I don't know. It's probably raised a lot of questions. Um, As we begin to work through the book of Acts, we are going to address these things as they come up in the text moving forward. So every sermon will not be like this in the book of Acts, but I, I wanted to sort of set the stage because there's still some confusion as to what the role of Israel in the church is amongst the disciples at the end of Luke and then as you move into the book of Acts. So I plan to address that more as we go forward, and um, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. So please bow with me. Heavenly Father, it is a staggering thought that we Gentiles here in this room who we were once alienated totally from you, we were hostile, we were without hope and without God in the world, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, we were strangers to the covenants of promise to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We had no part in that. And you in your immense mercy have opened the floodgates in the gospel And you have welcomed us in to the Messiah Jesus, into union with Christ, so that we could be righteous in Christ, we could be beloved, we could be redeemed, we could be a special chosen people, we could have our heart circumcised to love you, cutting away the sin in our heart, we we could be your sheep and you could be our good shepherd, we could be the saints, we are holy in Christ Jesus. We are your house, we are your temple that you are building in this age. We are Abraham's true offspring, and we are the sons of God. God, this is staggering, a staggering reality that we have. And God, for, for the questions that may be raised, I pray that we would be able to address those in future weeks moving forward. Uh, I pray that you would show us in the book of Acts how some of these things are fleshed out and how we can apply them to our lives. Thank you for the patience and the care of those in this room who have, who have listened carefully and, and have, have tried to follow along as best they can. And so I pray that you would help uh, us to uh, read, read our scriptures, to see uh, how these things work, how they fit together. And I pray that you'd be at work in our midst. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We were just here not long ago, Philippians chapter 3. 